The Upper Ohio Valley generally includes western Pennsylvania, West Virginia's northern panhandle, and eastern Ohio. It's a mix of geography and more cultural regional definitions, like the Bible Belt or the Rust Belt, which the Upper Ohio Valley is a part of. This region, like much of Appalachia, has been defined by extractive industries. Timber, mining, steel refinery, these days oil and natural gas. These industries have shaped the story of this region, including the story of agriculture. Karen Cox is a West Virginia University Cooperative Extension Agent for Ohio County, West Virginia. West Virginia's got a really long history with the extractive industry. I mean, you go back to the 1900s when they clear-cut the whole of West Virginia um, and the fires that followed and that took the rest of the timber out, um, the coal railroads going through. And While Wheeling may have been a mecca in the 1900s, it was very hard on the landscape. Logging for timber continued through the 20th and into the 21st century, and is still going strong in the southern and central parts of the state, but in the northern panhandle and throughout eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania, extractive industries largely shifted towards coal. Miners were often paid in scrip, tokens marked with a symbol unique to each mine, which could only be used at the company store. Most of the mining was supported by out-of-state financing and run by out-of-state superintendents, keeping most of the profits out-of-state. In 1890, Columbus, Ohio, served as the birthplace for the United Mine Workers of America. Well, I started in agriculture because my father um, was a uh, miner, uh, and he had a garden. His independence was his gardens and stuff mm -hmm. like that, so that he could thumb his nose that he was always a union person, and they could go out on strike and still have food. Mick Luber grew up around here, in Adena, Ohio. After years away in Chicago and Columbus, he returned to Harrison County and started Bluebird Farm. Mick spent much of the 1970s building up the local food and agriculture scene through organizations like the Federation for Ohio River Co-ops. People from all over Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, parts of Indiana that had a, started the Federation of Ohio River Co-ops. Yeah. And... Uh, I worked with, with them for years. Uh, we started a store in Wheeling. Uh, well, it started Martin's Ferry, a co-op. And uh, while we were doing that, a group of people kept on looking for places to farm. Uh, we were going to try to have a hippy-dippy commune, I guess. But most parents cut off their kids. They said that they'd buy him a place if they didn't get involved in that kind of stuff. By the time he bought his own property in 1979, the landscape had started to change. The amount of farms uh, in this area are decreasing because first they strip mined it all and there's not many farms left. There's not many places that people could farm. This county is 65% of the county was strip mined. Mm-hmm. Strip mining in eastern Ohio had been happening since the early 1800s, but hit a huge boom in the 60s and 70s. A New York Times article from 1970 described rolling, unfarmed farmland just west of the Ohio River being chewed into billions of tons of rocky rubble by strip mining for coal. In the past decade or so, as coal mining has seen some decline, oil and gas has become the dominant extractive industry in the upper Ohio Valley. It's brought some money into the region, but has also impacted the environment. Both factors have had an effect on local agriculture. 
Karen Cox through West Virginia University Cooperative Extension, has been looking into residual impacts of the oil and gas boom on farming and found that signing bonuses and royalty payments allowed some farms to reinvest in equipment and infrastructure, while others took the opportunity to retire. We've also, as a side effect of the oil and gas um, boom that came through with pipelines and uh, lead lines, um, there's been a lot of disturbance to our topsoil and farmers struggling to come back from having their quality soil that they have worked and tilled for generations now is subsoil and isn't really soil anymore. Karen has found that these issues with topsoil are common because of the expense associated with setting the soil aside, protecting it from washing away while the pipeline is built, and then putting topsoil back on top. Um, but it's so important because subsoil is not soil. It's not growing medium. It's very acidic in this region because of our parents, parent soil or rock types um, that create the soil. Um, there's no uh, biotic community in it to help break down nutrients. So you're basically starting from rock and trying to grow a garden on it or grow pasture on it. And it's, it's a challenge. Eric Freeland, like many of the farmers I talked to, has seen these side effects of the oil and gas industry firsthand. The dairy farm next door, which belonged to Eric's family until it was sold in the 1950s, recently got out of the business. Oh, and just a note, I conducted these interviews in people's homes or on their farms, so throughout the series, you may hear the sounds of people serving snacks, their heaters kicking on, dogs, fish tanks. Okay. But, uh, yeah, other than them selling out the dairy farm, of course, they still have the cattle and probably doing okay with all the gas and oil revenues. That's been a big boom for farmers. You know, that's a double-edged sword. You know, the money is, is pretty sweet right off the bat, but then down the road you get to deal with it. I've got a lawsuit going on now, as with all the farmers in the Northern Panhandle, Sunoco, that pipeline, I think it's called Mariner 2, that went clear across the, like, eight states. Mm -hmm. They've kind of destroyed a lot of our ground. Wow. And didn't put it back right, so we've got this extensive lawsuit uh, against them. I don't know where it's ever going to get settled up. The loss of topsoil isn't the only environmental challenge coming from oil and gas. Well pads and compressor stations necessary for fracking not only eat up land, but can create noise and air quality concerns for people living and farming near them, like McLuber. The worst thing around here is this gas and oil stuff. They're destroying even more of the land mm -hmm. with all that stuff. I mean, how, I, in good faith, I go to markets and I'm standing there telling people about the three... Uh, well pads. There's another one getting ready to go in right up here above my upper field. There's a compressor station right over here that has 10 diesels that run constantly yeah. from the compressor station. And I'm selling people orga organic food. All that stuff is dropping on this property from all that. Yeah. Do you feel like that's affected your uh, crops or has, has that turned some people off at all? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know for sure. Yeah. I know that I, I'm, I'm talking to people and telling them this compressor station is running over the hill and there's this black oil on my strings that I put up to trellis things on. I'm sure that they're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. For farmers who sell directly to consumers through farmers markets or CSAs, this can complicate customer relations. And for farmers who are certified organic, like McLuber, it compromises the principles they've built their farms around. 
threatening not only their philosophical reasons for farming, but the marketing boosts and premium prices that organic certification offers. The link between agriculture and extractive industries is an ancient one. For centuries, we've been making tough decisions about land use by placing value on what we can get out of that land. Often, whatever has the most economic value, not environmental or social value, wins out. Pipelines and strip mining often destroys farmland. Whether or not it makes up for that destruction by bringing money into rural areas is up for debate. How much is it worth to know that there's still land available to produce food in our communities? That in a crisis, if our supply chain broke down, we'd still have access to fresh produce or meat, eggs or grain? How much is it worth if a family can keep their farm as one piece because they sold the mineral rights to pay for grandma and grandpa's retirement? It's not a cut and dry issue, but there's no doubt that historically and in the coming years, extractive industries are indelibly linked to the social sustainability of our agrarian communities. And speaking of available farmland, land tenure is another concern brought on by the oil and gas boom in the upper Ohio Valley. Those income boosts that Karen mentioned earlier have really impacted the value of land. There is a back to the land movement and if we can just get people to sell their land, um, oil and gas, going back to the earlier question, spiked land prices. You know, 10 years ago you could buy a farm for $100,000 and now you're looking at $500,000. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has spiked land prices. In the next episode, we'll hear more about transferring farmland between generations and some challenges faced by first generation farmers who didn't inherit their land. <laughs>